Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. Tell me if you've ever found yourself in this hypothetical situation. Hypothetically, it's the morning, you've gotten up, you're going to spend some time with God, you're sitting in your favorite chair or couch or wherever it is that you, you know, go do this and you got your, you know, your cup of coffee and it's or tea, you know, whatever, and you got your like, uh, you know, stack of A.W. Tozer books, hypothetically, and you're sitting there, you're reading the Bible, you're, oh yeah, this is good. You're underlining stuff. Oh yeah, the, I'm, I'm feeling this. And as you're underlining, you're like, let me stop and I'm going to pray about this passage. And things are going really well. You feel like you're hearing from the Lord. You feel like God's close to you. And then there it is. You hear it in another room. A, a, a rustle, some footsteps, some noise, and you stop. And then you can almost count one second of silence, two seconds of silence, And then, and all of a sudden, someone is screaming, and there's noise, and there's chaos. And so you get up, and you go see, hypothetically, what your kids have done, and you find that one of your kids is laying on the ground crying while the other kid is just standing there looking like, oh, no. And you say to one of your kids, whose name is hypothetically Aiden, You say, what happened? And hypothetically, he responds, I don't know. I was just swinging my fists in the air and she walked into them. And you know what really happened? Hypothetically, no no one's ever experienced this or is this just me? That hypothetically, in the midst of meeting with God, all of a sudden there's noise, there's chaos, uh, and you're kind of sucked out of that moment. And when you investigate what's going on. No one really wants to take responsibility for it. And you walk away thinking, what is wrong with these people? What is wrong with these people that I live with? My kids, whatever. Well, I think Moses hypothetically could relate to that story. In Exodus chapter 32, he actually has a very similar experience. I'm not going to read Exodus 32, but Exodus 32 sets the background of our sermon this morning. In Exodus 32, Moses isn't sitting in his favorite chair meeting with God, but he is on a mountain meeting with God. He's receiving the Ten Commandments. He's receiving all of this revelation from God. It describes the scene as the top of the mountain is like it's clouds and lightning and thunder. It's this incredible experience. And while Moses is on the cloud meeting with God, drinking coffee probably, uh, while he's up there, what does he hear? Noise. He hears shouting. He hears noise, and on the way down the mountain to go see what the noise is, he sees a golden calf in the middle of the people. Uh, this is a, 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 an idol or an image made of gold to look like a calf. Now, if you know the story, you know that Moses had been on the mountain so long that all the Israelites were like, they got his, his number two guy, Aaron, his name was Aaron, and they said, Aaron, I don't even know, like, how long has Moses been up there? We don't even know if he's dead. 
You know, like we need a God to worship. And Aaron says, well, give me all your gold. And he takes the gold and he melts it down in the fire. And Aaron makes a golden calf. And as soon as he pulls the golden calf out and sets it before them, they're like, this is the God that did all the miracles. You know, the God they just made. And all of a sudden they take everything that Yahweh, their real God did, and they attribute it to this idol. So Moses sees that golden calf on the way down, and man, he's, he's upset. He actually takes the, he had just gotten the Ten Commandments, and he slams them on the ground, and he breaks them, which we've usually understood as a, as a symbol that the people have broken God's law, and now Moses broke it just to show them what they've done. Moses comes down out of the camp, he's like, Mo, uh, Aaron, What's going on here? And Aaron says, I don't know what happened. I mean, we just threw all this gold in the fire and all of a sudden this calf jumped out, fully formed, just like I was just swinging my fists in the air and she walked into them. I don't know how it happened. And Aaron takes no responsibility. Well, it actually gets pretty intense after this because they have a battle among themselves. Those who are faithful to the Lord and those who we're faithful to this golden calf. They have a battle and a lot of people die. There's a lot of ramifications of what happens here. And I want to, that was Exodus 32. I want to spend most of our time today in Exodus 33 and 34 and just look at how this story develops. If this was a play, I think it would have four acts in it. Uh, there would be kind of four parts of the story. So we're going to look at this in four parts. The first part is the aftermath of Israel's sin. The second part is Moses' prayer or intercession. The third part is Moses' encounter with God. And the fourth part is the result of meeting with God. So let's jump into the aftermath of Israel's sin. We're in Exodus 33. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. These will be on the screen if you want to follow along. But if you have a Bible, you can go to Exodus 33, 1 through 6. We're going to be in the New Living Translation this morning. So mind you, this is after the golden calf incident. Moses has come down off the mountain. God is angry. Moses is disappointed. The Lord said to Moses, get going, you and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt. Go up to the land I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I told them I will give this land to your descendants and I will send an angel before you to drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to this land that flows with milk and honey, but I will not travel among you, for you are a stubborn and rebellious people. If I did, I would surely destroy you along the way. When the people heard these stern wor words, they went into mourning and stopped wearing their jewelry and fine clothes, for the Lord had told Moses to tell them, you are a stubborn and rebellious people. If I were to travel with you for even a moment, I would destroy you. Remove your jewelry and fine clothes while I decide what to do with you. That's, I'm pretty sure I've said exactly that sentence to my kids. Wait here while I decide what to do with you. So from the time they left Mount Sinai, the Israelites wore no more jewelry or fine clothes. So let's stop right there. Here's what happens. Moses has been leading the people on a journey this entire time. Where's the journey taking them? It's supposed to be taking them to the promised land. At this point, the promised land was referred to as Canaan, but we know it is modern-day Israel. He's taking them to the promised land, a land that flows with milk and honey, which doesn't really mean that there's milk and honey in the streets. It means that there's like uh, 
bees, which produce honey, which, which relates to crops. So there's crops for bees to pollinate and produce honey. And then there's also milk, which you get from flocks. And so uh, this is a land that's going to have both uh, plants and animals for them to live in. It's going to be this great place. That's what milk and honey actually means. You're going to be able to have crops and flocks both, not just one or the other. Uh, crops means you're going to be able to settle there. You're not going to move around like nomads in, anymore. You're going to be in one place. So there's this beautiful place that God's leading them to. It's, we call it the promised land. And Moses is taking them there. And in verse 3, this is really like the crux of the situation. God says, go up to this land that flows with the milk and honey. I'm not going to keep you out of that. Go to your destiny. Go where you're going but I will not travel among you for you are a stubborn and rebellious people. God's decision is this. Listen, I got you out of Egypt to send you into the promised land. So keep going to the promised land, but I'm staying here. I'm not going with you anymore. You can go have your milk and honey. You can go have your crops. You can go have your flocks. You can build your houses. You can have all of that destiny, wonderful, good stuff, but I will not go with you. And he actually says, I'll send an angel with you instead. Now, it says in verse four that when the people heard these stern words, stern words, they went into mourning. They understood that the promised land without the promised giver is just dirt. And they realized what they had done, at least for a short period of time, they realized that what they had done has so offended God, he wasn't gonna prevent them from going to the promised land because he has to keep the promise that he made, but he did say, but I'm not going to go with you. I'll send an angel with you instead. He'll clear the place out and uh, make a way for you. Now, this conversation right here between God and the, and the people of Israel, this is interesting to me because how does a God that's everywhere not go with you? Right? I mean, wouldn't we all say God is everywhere? I mean, when they get to the promised land, then isn't God there? I mean, God is everywhere. We believe that. We believe that wholeheartedly. God is everywhere. God is at the grocery store. God is at the post office. God is everywhere. But what he was saying is, but I, I, while I'm everywhere, you will not see me do anything. You will not feel my closeness. You will not experience my blessing. He's withholding what we would call his manifest presence. God's manifest presence goes above and beyond his omnipresence. As I said, God is everywhere. God is at the grocery store. God is at the post office. God is on the bus. God is in your house. But there are moments where it's not just that God is everywhere, but you are consciously aware that God is here. Sometimes you feel it in the weightiness or heaviness of a song that we sing in church. Sometimes you see it with your eyes when a person who was sick is miraculously healed. Let me say this. Anytime you're convicted of sin, that's God's manifest presence. God's omnipresence does not convict people of sin. You know how I know that? Because if it did, everyone everywhere would be convicted all the time. It's not his omnipresence that convicts people. It's his manifest presence when he says, I'm here. In Hebrew, the word for his presence is panim, and it just means face or eyes. Think of eye contact. You know, you can be present in a room with per a person, but when you lock eyes, it's a whole other level of presence, 
right? Now you have their attention and they have your attention and there's like a level of connection and intimacy that's a little deeper. That's what God's manifest presence is. We're not just in the room with him. We are face to face with him. We are eye to eye with him. Our attention is on him. So how does an all-present God not go with someone? He says, listen, I'm going to be in Canaan the same way I'm everywhere, but I'm not going to be there in any special way. You're not going to sense my nearness. There's not going to be any miracles. There's not going to be any fantastic you know, signs and wonders. Uh, I'll be there generally, but I'm not going to be there personally. Now, how would you respond if God offered you the promised land but said that he was going to withdraw his presence? I mean, what, what is the promised land to you? Could it be a new job? A promotion could be another person, could be a bigger house, could be a. I mean, what if God said, listen, you can have that material stuff, you can have it, but I'm not going to be in it. Now, I know that some people would say, deal, because people have said that. People have chosen the material things and they have lost an awareness of God's presence. I guess I want to just issue a a small warning. Like There are going to be times where you're going to be faced with that choice. You're going to be faced with that choice. God is going to say, listen, you can have the milk and the honey, but I'm not going there. You can have the better job, better house, better this, better that, but you can have it. I'm not going to stop you from it, but I'm not going there. You will lose my manifest presence. I mean, people have experienced that. And so, thankfully, the people here, when they realize this in verse four, it says they went into mourning. They realized what they were faced with. They realized that, you know, I I don't know that I want the milk and the honey if I don't get God. I don't know if I want the milk and the honey if I don't get Yahweh. Says in uh, verses four through six that the people were saddened by the news. So this is the aftermath of Israel's sin. Now, if you look at verse six, uh, Uh, Sorry, this is verse five. In verse five, he says, remove your jewelry and fine clothes while I decide what to do with you. So God says, give me some time to think about this. This is crazy that God takes time to think about something. I kind of think maybe God's mind was made up, but he was like, but I want to make you sit in silence because I want to see what comes up out of you. I want to see what's in your heart, Israel. I want to see like what happens. There is one person, Moses, who decides, I'm going to stand in the gap here. You know, I wasn't there for the sin. I was with God where I should have been. <laughs> and Moses decides to stand in the gap for the people of Israel. And in Exodus 33, verses 12 through 23, I'm going to read this. Moses, while God is deciding what to do with the people, Moses makes, he prays, and he makes an effort to restore the relationship. Exodus thirty-three, twelve. One day Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me to take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't told me whom you'll send with me. You've told me I know you by name and I look favorably on you. Well, if it's true that you look favorably on me, then let me know your ways so that I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And remember that this nation is your very own people. The Lord replied, I will personally go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. Everything will be fine for you. 
okay, so now all of a sudden, okay, God is going to go with them. Moses has succeeded in convincing God to go with them. Verse 15, Moses said, if you don't personally, that's the manifest presence, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. He's speaking on behalf of the people. He's saying, I don't want the milk and the honey if I don't get you. If you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and on your people, if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all the other people of the earth. The Lord replied to Moses, I will indeed do what you have asked, for I look favorably on you, and I know you by name. Moses responded, then show me your glorious presence. The Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will call out my name, Yahweh, before you. I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. But you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. The Lord continued, look, stand near me on this rock. As my glorious presence passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and let you see me from behind, but my face will not be seen. So after the aftermath of Israel's sin, Moses prays on behalf of Israel. Basically, he is the mediator. He's standing between Israel and God and saying, God, forgive our sin and go with us. And what's interesting is, and people have a hard time with this, was Moses guilty of the sin? No. But he was the mediator. He is taking responsibility positionally for someone else's sin and saying, forgive the sin. He's foreshadowing Jesus, who was not guilty of sin, who stands between us and God to bring reconciliation, right? It's sometimes necessary for leaders or representatives to take responsibility for the sins that even they did not commit, that they weren't around for, they weren't present for. Does that make sense? Sometimes you have to do that in order to bring healing and reconciliation. Now, when Moses says to God, you have to go with us. This is another acknowledgement of the distinction between God's omnipresence and manifest presence. In verse 12, let me read that really quickly. Verse 12, he says, you've been telling me, God, uh, take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't told me who you'll send with me. You told me, God, that you know me by name and you look favorably upon me. That's another way of saying, God, you told me that you know me and you like me. If you know me and you like me, then come with me. Basically what Moses is doing is he's appealing to God's promises in order to gain God's presence. Moses, you said you you know me, uh, sorry, not Moses. God, you said you know me, you said you like me, then send your presence with me. Don't leave me, don't abandon me. He's appealing to the promises of God in order to gain access to the presence of God. Moses was not willing to leave, even to enter the promised land, if God was not gonna go with them. Moses basically said, listen, if this is the last place where you are, then I'm staying here, even if I never get the milk and the honey. Even if I never get the bigger, the better, the shinier stuff, I'm gonna stay here because I know that you're here. Moses also knew that God's presence was what set them apart from every other nation. This is in verse 16. Your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all the other people of the earth. What was the one thing that made the Jewish people different? God's presence. That was it. 
It wasn't their language. It wasn't their diet. It was God's presence. I think, man, the church needs to get back to this. You know, we so often think, you know what makes, you know what makes Christians different? The way we vote. We all vote the same, but we don't. <laughs> but we think we do. You know what makes Christians different? Uh, we don't say bad words. We don't listen to secular music. We, don't, we boycott everything. We don't watch this. We don't watch that. You know, I, I'm glad that we all have standards. That's good. But that's not what makes you different. I mean, I can find a lot of non-believers that have clean language, abstain from certain things, and vote the way people might vote. But they don't have God's presence. God's presence is what's supposed to make the church different from everywhere else. You can find people that vote, dress, talk, listen, watch the way you do at the grocery store, but you won't find God's manifest presence in the grocery store the way you should find it in a church. A church without God's presence, I don't even know what it is. You know, it's just, a, I guess it's like a, a club that's not going to last very long. But when God is present in a way that people see, feel, taste, touch, hear, all of a sudden that makes the church different from the grocery store, the post office, the bank, right? And I don't just mean the church gathering on a Sunday morning. I mean the people that comprise the church. So God's presence is what distinguishes God's people from every other group. Now Moses stood in the gap for these people, and we need gap standers today. I mean, are you, you might be the Moses in your family, like the only one who's following Jesus, or maybe you're the leader in your household, so are you willing to stand in the gap? I mean, are you willing to stand and say, God, they're not walking with you right now, but I'm standing here not to complain about them, but to ask for forgiveness on their behalf. Do something in our family, or maybe it's not your family, maybe it's our city, Philadelphia needs intercessors, needs people who are willing to stand in the gap and say, God, I know we're murdering people every day. We're killing more people than COVID just with violence. I know we're doing that, so forgive us. We need people that will stand in the gap as mediators. What about for the United States of America? There should be Christians who are willing to stand in the gap instead of defending our sin, repenting of our sin. I mean, so... This is not just a sermon for elders and pastors. This is for any Christian that feels like their job is to stand in the gap and be a mediator and try to bring reconciliation between God and humanity. Now, I get, I'm going to have a hard time getting through this next section. In verse 18, God, at this point, Moses has said, God, you have to go with us. God has said, I'm going to go with you. Like, okay, we've mended fences we're going to get to get the milk and honey, and we get to get, have God. And then Moses says this in verse 18. He says, then show me your glorious presence. This is Moses pushing the envelope. Okay, you're going to go with us? One more thing. <laughs> Let me push this a little bit. Can I see you? <sighs> he could have just been happy. Okay, Whew. crisis averted. But he pushes it and he says, can I see you? And I, God likes that. The reason I know that God likes that is because God says, yeah, you can. 
The idea of being bored with God is something Moses never entertained. <clears throat> Moses was, was fascinated with God. God obliges Moses' request, and he says, yeah, <clears throat> you can see me. I'm not going to let you see my face because it would fry you. <laughs> but, but I will cover you and I will put you in a rock and you'll see the back of me and I will say my name when I pass by. Psalm 37.4 says that if you delight in the Lord, he will give you the desires of his heart. If I was going to paraphrase that, this is how I would say it. When your heart desires God, God gives you the desires of your heart. When your heart desires God, God will give you the desire of your heart, which is him. Not the milk and the honey, him. That's what you get. The reward for obeying God and loving God is God, not stuff. Now they're going to get the milk and the honey thrown in. But Moses, so Moses asks, I want to see your glory. God says, I wish I had more time to get into this. He says, I'm going to hide you in a crevice of a rock. Because you know this and I know this, that if, if Moses just stood there and locked, looked directly on God, his face would <laughs> melt off. Like I think Indiana Jones pretty much nailed it. Like That's what would happen. His face would melt off. He'd just be a screaming skeleton. Um, <laughs> so what does he say? I want to just, I want to have to put some sunblock on you. You know, you're going to need some of those... Uh, eclipse glasses because you could not handle my presence if you saw it. So I'm going to hide you in a rock. <clears throat> I kind of think that this rock in this passage foreshadows Jesus. That you have to be hidden in Christ if you're going to see God's presence and live. If I can, I should probably say this for when the cameras aren't rolling, but I'm going to say it anyway. I have a personal theory that Maybe hell is just you're exposed to God's presence without being hidden in Jesus. It's that frying that, that we are talking about. Maybe that's what that is. It's, it's got, you're exposed to God's glory, but you have nothing to protect you, and you just burn. Whereas in heaven, you're in Christ, and you're able to survive God's glory. That's just a theory. It could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. But... In any event, Moses has to be hidden in this rock in order to survive this meeting with God. I don't know if you've ever met with God that was so powerful you weren't sure you were going to survive it. I think there, there probably have been church services that are so boring you're not sure you're going to survive those. I remember crying once in a church service, not because I was moved, but I was like, this is so long. <laughs> I never went back to that church. Um, but Moses is having this encounter with God that is so intense, he's not sure he's going to survive it. Let me read about this encounter with God. It's in chapter 34, just continuing the story, verses 5 through 9. <clears throat> this is the actual moment of meeting with God. He says, it says, the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with Moses. God called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and, un and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, 
but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. Moses immediately threw himself to the ground and worshiped. And he said, O Lord, if it is true that I have found favor with you, then please travel with us. Yes, this is a stubborn and rebellious people, but please forgive our iniquity and our sins. Claim us as your own special possession. So this encounter that Moses has with God, I just want to point out two things from it. Number one, the whole thing centers around the character and the nature of God. It could almost be like a systematic theology. It just has adjectives about what God is like. Compassionate, merciful, slow to anger, filled with love and faithfulness. He forgives iniquity. He forgives rebellion and sin, but he does not excuse it. I mean, this is a, it's all about God and what the characteristics of God are. It's not about butterflies in your stomach and emotions and hype. It's, it's about God. And because it's about God, how does Moses respond? This is the second part. He just falls on his, I mean, it says he immediately threw himself to the ground and worshiped. He falls on his face and worshiped. I mean, it's, I don't know if you guys are picking up on this trend the last couple of months, how many people fall on their face in the Bible. Um, so I have two ways that we could respond to that. I could um, program that and plan it. It's like, okay, everybody come up, throw yourself on the ground, and some churches would do that. That's not what I think we're going to do. Here's what I would say you got to pursue God to the point where you end up on the ground at some point. You know, like if you've never, if you've been walking with Jesus for 20 years and never found yourself on the ground, push a little harder. I don't mean like try it in your own strength. I mean like push through until you find yourself like I can't help but get on the ground. This happened to me, well, it's happened to me a couple times, but I remember in particular, I was... I was in a college classroom. I was not a student. I was helping lead the class. And my college was weird because <laughs> we would just sing and pray for 20 minutes, 30 minutes before we taught anything. And I remember in that particular class how heavily you could feel God. And I felt like I was fully consciously aware of what was happening. My knees... I, I said, Jim, you're going to be on the ground one way or another in about two, two seconds. You can go down voluntarily or involuntarily, but my legs could not stand under the weight of what we were feeling in the room. So I just was like, okay. <laughs> and I went down voluntarily, but I ended up on my face in, the, in a classroom in, in God's presence. If, you, if you've never experienced that, I would say reorganize the way you meet with God. You know, it's going to have to be probably less about reading chip, chicken soup for the Christian soul and start actually like praying and worshiping and meeting with God deeply. Set aside more time. I realize this is not something you can force. You can't force a, sun, a suntan, but you know how you can make sure you get a suntan? By being with the sun. This is how you meet with God. You can't force an encounter with God, but if you consistently put yourself in his presence, you will find yourself changed. John Eric alluded to that this morning while he was reading. This, this encounter with God that Moses has does not lead to a book report. It's not intellectual. It is fully experiential. 
His whole being is caught up in this experience, and it bears results. In Exodus 34, the story just continues. This is the fourth act of the play. Exodus 34, verses 28 through 35. Moses remained there on the mountain with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. In all that time, he ate no bread and drank no water. And the Lord wrote in the terms of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, on stone tablets. Then Moses came down Mount Sinai carrying the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant. He wasn't aware that his face had become radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. So when Aaron and the people of Israel saw the radiance of Moses' face, they were afraid to come near him. So he's been with God so much he doesn't realize it, but his face is glowing. And I don't mean glowing like he's got oil of Olay, you know. This is like oil of Yahweh. And his face is, that's a good joke. His face is glowing with God's manifest presence. And he doesn't even know it. Verse 31, Moses called out to them and he asked Aaron and all the leaders of the community to come over and he spoke with them. Then all the people of Israel approached him and Moses gave them all the instructions the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. Then Moses finished speaking with them. He covered his face with a veil, but whenever he went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he would remove the veil until he came out again. So he had to put a veil on his face because the people could hardly stand to look at how glorious his face was. He had to put a covering over it, but when he went to meet with God, he took the cover off. Face to face with God again. He would give the people whatever instructions the Lord had given him, and the people of Israel would see the radiant glow of his face, so he would put the veil over his face until he returned to speak with the Lord. So here's the result of Moses' meeting with God. Now he's reflecting God's glory. It's not Moses' Moses's glory that's shining. It's God's glory reflecting off of Moses' face. This is, like what I, this is what I'm referring to when I talk about the overflow of your life. Your face may not glow, you know, but if you've met with God, that's going to spill over into your conversations. It's going to spill over into the way you treat people. It's going to spill over into when we sing on Sunday mornings. When you've met with God, there's going to be some sort of outward effect or impact that it's going to have. I would also say, and this is kind of just a leadership thing, Moses had authority to lead because it was obvious that he had been with God. Imagine arguing with a guy whose face is glowing. You know, you might even have a better point, but you just maybe shouldn't. Moses' face is glowing. That gives him authority. And what God gave Moses, Moses gave to the people. Whether you're a leader in a church or a leader at your workplace or a leader in your family, what God gives you eventually is going to be for you to give others. It might not be that day. It might be two years down the road. But what God deposits in you is eventually going to come out in some situation where you're going to share that or the lesson you learned is going to be helpful. Okay, so that's this kind of four-act play. I wish I had a little more time, but there's one more thing I need to cover in this story. But let me review this. We start with the aftermath of Israel's sin with the golden calf. Moses steps in and intercedes and brings reconciliation between God and humanity. That's a foreshadowing of Jesus. Moses himself has an encounter with God and the result of that encounter with God leads to his effective leadership and ministry among the people. Now, 
couple final observations here. How did the golden calf come about? It came about because majority ruled, right? I mean, Aaron didn't know what to do, and Aaron said, I don't know, what do you guys think I should do? He asked the crowd, and the crowd said, um, make us a god. I mean, this is the interesting thing. Aaron did exactly what the people wanted, and it backfired horribly, right? Aaron listened to the people. Moses listened to God. Now, those are not always mutually exclusive. There are times when God speaks through the people, but this is not one of those instances. In this instance, the people led the leaders astray. Aaron listened to the people. Moses listened to the presence. Here's when there is wisdom in the crowd. This is going to sound really corny. I don't mean it to sound corny. There is wisdom in the crowd when the crowd has also been in the cloud. Okay, here's what I mean by that. When all of us have experienced God the way Moses did, and all of us are experiencing that, then there is wisdom. But when two or three people experience God and the majority don't, it'd be better to listen to the ones that experience God, right? Now, this is the, this is the I've been working all day to get to this. Man, but they all could have been in the cloud. The whole group of them could have been in the cloud, but they chose not to. Go to Exodus 20. You've got to go back 12, 13, 14 chapters. It's going to be on the screen. This is where everything went wrong. Exodus 20. When the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the ram's horn, when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance trembling with fear. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak directly to us or we will die. Don't be afraid, Moses answered, for God has come this way to test you so that your fear of him will keep you from sinning. As the people stood in the distance, Moses approached the dark cloud where God was. Here we have this opportunity where all of Israel could have gone into the cloud and they said, Moses, you go for us. We're afraid. We have not lived holy or consecrated or sanctified lives and we know that if we go into that cloud, we're dead. In fact, hey Moses, you tell us what God said. Don't let God speak to us directly. I hope none of you have ever said something like that. Don't let God speak to me. Moses was willing to approach God and the crowd was not willing to approach God. This is another powerful picture of the crowd settling for God's omnipresence and saying, I don't want the cost of the manifest presence. They saw a crowd, uh, sorry, they saw a cloud full of thunder and lightning and Moses said, let's go. And they said, no, you go and tell us how it went. 
That is where this whole thing went wrong because when Moses comes back out of that cloud, they have a golden calf. They should have been in that cloud with him. They should have been on the mountain with him, but they weren't willing to go. Now, I feel like there are times in my life where I have been in Moses' shoes, and probably many of you feel like there's times in your lives where you've been in Moses' shoes. And it's like, Lord, no one's with me. (laughs) No one's going into this cloud with me. No one wants to pray. No one wants to worship. No one wants to do this stuff. Here's a lesson from Moses. It's better to go alone than not to go at all. I mean, can you imagine how bad things would have gotten if they didn't have Moses at least? Moses, it's not good that he had to go alone, but at least he went. You might be the only person in your family that's willing to go into the cloud. Then go alone. Don't wait for everyone else. Then go by yourself. At least your family will have one person in God's presence. At least your family will have one person there to pump the brakes when all the bad decisions start happening. Right? So it's better to go alone than not to go at all. Now, I read this story and I just, I mean, I know it's in the Bible, (laughs) but I have a hard time wrapping my head around that this really happened. I mean, it did really happen, but it just, it, it blows my mind. Trusting someone else to meet with God on your behalf is a major failure. I mean, oh, this person will, this person will pray, this person will do it, I'll, I'll just listen to them. You're, you're totally abdicating your responsibility to have a relationship with God. Trusting someone else to meet with God on your behalf is a major failure, but not listening to them once they have met with God on your behalf is a total disaster. I mean, you you should never even put a person in a situation that Moses was put in. You know, you, you go do it for all of us. Just, you know, tell us what you found. Tell us what you heard. You should never, we should never be doing that. We should never be creating that type of situation. That was not God's intent. Because right before this passage, he says, you are going to be a kingdom of priests. But what did they say? Well, how about just one tribe? They can be the priests. Instead of all of us being the priests, let's have the, the Aaronic, the Levites, but we're not all gonna be priests. That's actually one of the things that Jesus restored in the new covenant. It's back to kingdom of priests now. Stop waiting for someone else to hear from God for you. Go into the cloud. Go into his presence. You, you should not be handing off your spiritual life to, for someone else and then living vicariously through what their experience was. You should be going into that cloud too. That's really, the, the crowd finds its value when the crowd has also been in the cloud. And forgive me for the corniness of that. I I wish I could find words that don't rhyme, but that's what it is. So here's what I want to do to wrap up. There have been times in my life where I've just lost focus of this stuff. Like, Lord, I know there was a, there was a time where, man, I, I, I really valued your presence and I would, I would pray for a long time or sing or read or fast or do whatever because I just wanted to know that you were near and then there have been other times where I just 
I don't know. Haven't. I don't know if you've experienced that, but I've asked a couple people to pray for us. Um, if you if you feel like I got to get back to Moses where Moses was, I got to get back to where I don't want the milk and honey if I don't get God. And if if I get God, I want to push it a little bit, not push the envelope of sin, but I want to push like God. Can I know more? I know you told me ten things about you today. Could I could I get like twelve? Could I learn 14 things about? Like, I think God likes that. He obliges that. He responds to that. So I've asked the Millers, the Sharkies, and Dan Keough if they would be our prayer team today. So if you guys five can come up. If you would like someone to pray for you just to like restore your focus on God's presence and cultivating God's presence in your life, this is our prayer team and they're willing to pray with you, okay? I want to pray for us. Come up when you're ready. You can come up. Uh, Dan, if you can stand right over here real quick just to even it out here. One versus four. I want to pray for us. If you want someone to pray with you, this is our prayer team and then uh, I'm going to dismiss you if you want to go. Jesus I know that there have been times in my life where I have gotten off track from this and there are probably times in all of our lives where we've gotten off track from this. We've wanted someone else to do it or we have just not valued it or we've been afraid and we've taken a step back like the people of Israel did. But Lord, we repent of that. Would you restore in us and to us this desire and this value that Moses had for your manifest presence? I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.